Now, over recent weeks, we've been looking at the presence of God uh, and seeing, if you like, the enormous privilege that is ours to be a people who actually have an experience of God's presence. Now, it rattles off the tongue very easily, but it's amazing, isn't it, really? Just to think that we should have just a millionth part, to know a millionth part of God's presence is extraordinary. And the privilege is, is immense. And therefore, in recent weeks, we've been looking at the place that praise has in his presence. That I'm conscious of who he is and that nothing was said to Richard last week and yet he should come in on the same theme and, and bring us to an awareness of how great God is. And if you like, that we must take him seriously. If I can, can't say that with a French accent. I tried my French long enough. I'm not going to do it again for a long time. But I want to look this morning in, in details in the, a number of incidents in the life of Elijah. Now, the issue that God's presence must be real for me. Now, I do think it's very important that when we come together that there is a collective corporate act of worship. And yet God needs to be real for me when I'm on my own as well. It's, all, it's easier when we're together, isn't it? Somehow the kind of, ah, is there a bit more? But I need to know the presence of God when there's no one else there. In my inner self. In, in the private world. If I can use the, um, the, if I can pinch the phrase from Euro 96, God must come home. Must not he? You see, it's possible, and I've spoken to a number of people recently who may be struggling with us or struggling with individuals and relationships are awkward, that uh, in, I think in every case, the sense in which the absence of this encounter with God personally on my own, on my own, where, where it's just me and God, on my own. Now, there is a sense in which if I don't know his presence there, I may be a little bit concerned that what I experience here might be a little more than emotion. God must invade my space. He must know the real me. And therefore there's this remarkable testimony of God's presence in the life of Elijah. He was quite a guy. I would say that Elijah was a giant by any standard. That in terms of his, his personal experience of God, he, he can hold his head up in the New Testament. Would you agree with that? Those of you that have read 1 Kings. Elijah was a man of immense stature in God. And actually the New Testament almost acknowledges this. That, uh, I don't know if you noticed, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, John the Baptist is coming, preparing the way from the Lord, for the Lord. And uh, that Luke quotes from the, from the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, and he says that John the Baptist is coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. So this giant of the Old Testament, that the, the same spirit, the same power, that was on Elijah 
was that which mantled and made John the Baptist effective. And, and when Jesus was transfigured, who was it who turned up to talk to him about his exodus, about his suffering? Moses and Elijah. So the idea that the Old Testament is a kind of old fooey, you know, it wasn't really where the power was, you know, and they haven't got a lot to learn from it, you know, it's kind of past, we're in the new. Uh, I feel absolutely dwarfed by Elijah. Quite dwarfed. And not, not, not least, in this whole sense of the man who knew the power and the presence of God when he was on his own. And there are those today who are muttering about ours being the Elijah generation. But have you heard that? It's one of the kind of cliches of our day. My word, if we're the Elijah generation, we have got one heck of a long way to go. Wouldn't you agree? Well, you don't know what Elijah did yet because you haven't read your Bible, but we'll get to it. Well, don't worry. But this man, it's quite interesting, really, that uh, we're going to read in 1 Kings 17. He suddenly appears. There's no reference to him before 1 Kings 17 in the whole of the Bible, and then suddenly this man appears on the stage. He comes center stage in chapter 18, but suddenly he appears. A nobody. But clearly, somebody that God had had his dealings with on his own over years beforehand. The idea, and sometimes I'm deceived in myself enough to believe it, that suddenly God will take hold of David Olsen and he will no longer be a carnal Christian, he'll be a spiritual Christian. And I'll have a kind of spiritual zap and wowie, right? And uh, you're nodding, wrong. Now, God deals with me over a period of time, over years, when I am on my own. This is where the, this is where the rubber hits the road, where the presence of God is concerned. There are three incidents in 1 Kings that I want us to look at when Elijah was on his own. The first one is in 1 Kings 17. I'm going to read the first six verses. Now, as I said, verse 1 is the first reference in the Bible that we have to this man. And it says this, Now Elijah, the Tishbite, don't ask me, I don't know, from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, that's the king, so something has happened for him to have access to the king prior to verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, but I think in whom I stand is, the, is another reading of that. There will be neither dew nor rain in the next years except at my word. Either this man was a megalomaniac or there was something, something very special about him. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, <laughs> run, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and you will drink from the brook. I have ordered ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him, and he went to the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in... Do you like to eat something that a bird had dropped? Yes, the, the Lord's provision is wonderful, isn't it? Yuck. 
and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Elijah appeared in what you might call in the teeth of the Omri dynasty. Now, Omri was Ahab's father. If you turn over into the previous chapter, it will just help to set the scene here. In chapter 16, verse 25, But Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. So they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. For as the other events of Omri's reign, what he did and the things that he achieved, are they not written in the book of the Lord? Verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria, over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did eat more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, a lovely lady, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So here we have Elijah, not in in an environment that is particularly conducive to boldness and being spiritual. He turns up in the middle of this most corrupt and idolatrous and greedy nation of Israel. Jezebel says it all, really, doesn't it? That this this infamous woman, her name carries it down the generations to being a time of of absolute apostasy. And and therefore, because of the the, the day in which this man started to function, he stood out. He, He couldn't open his mouth without going against the tide. That whatever this man did, because of the context that he was in, this man was an irritant as soon as he spoke, whatever he did. And uh, we have the, the incident, he, he, he turns up, he, he says to Ahab, he, he, he brings a judgment. This is something to make you popular with the king. You know, he pronounces a judgment on the nation, and then clears off and hides at the brook Kerith. And this isolated the man. I don't know what he thought when he was by the brook Kerith and the angels were dropping their food. I don't know what else they dropped, but uh, but here he was. I don't know what went through his mind. But there was something about the truth of God that isolated him. It wasn't just on this occasion. On one occasion, in chapter 19, he goes to Hazel. Now, this is the ruler in the next kingdom, Israel's enemies. And he has the audacity, this will make him popular at home, of going and anointing Hazel as the king over, uh, uh, over this land that will oppress Israel. He then goes and finds this general called Jehu. And uh, there's a king in Israel, but he goes to, to, to Jehu. And he says, Jehu, and he got his oil. He said, you're going to be king over Israel. Well, if anything is going to make him unpopular among his friends, this is it. Can you see that? That, that the word of God actually isolated Elijah. And then there was the business with Naboth. And this is a chap who had a vineyard. And the king, um, uh, Ahab, wanted Naboth's vineyard. 
And, and when Naboth said he couldn't because it was in the family for generations and generations, the, the king sulked. And Jezebel says, why is the king sulking? Kings shouldn't sulk. Go and take it. And she had him killed. And Elijah went to tell him. He brought the word of the Lord. He spoke truth in, an, in a generation of great wickedness. He was not the flavor of the month. The word of God isolates me in that it brings a sense of truth. I, I have always thought that Ahab's estimate of, a, of uh, Elijah, oh, it's you, is it? You troubler of Israel. <laughs> you know, that the word of God has that kind of edge on it. It gave him a, an, a, a reputation very quickly. There was another man who was seeking to serve the Lord and honor the Lord. His name was Obadiah. It's down in chapter 19. And uh, Obadiah met Elijah in the road. And Elijah says, oh, Obadiah, you work for the king. Tell the, go and tell the king that I'm coming. So I'm not telling the king I've seen you. If, if, if the king knows I've seen you, he'll think that I'm part of your lot and I'll lose my head. It, it was not a good idea, right? Elijah was not a popular man. God's word makes us distinctive. It actually separates us in a, in, in a corrupt day. It will, the word of God will make me different. But the writer of the Hebrew says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Jesus, when he was praying his high priestly prayer in John 17, they are not of this world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For I sanctify myself that they too might be truly sanctified. The word of God will have an effect on me. I hope for your sake it doesn't give you the prophetic edge that it gave Elijah. Because if it did, you are in for one heck of a ministry. I tell you, John Major will love to see you coming, not to mention the Bishop of Southwark, because they, there are aspects in which the truth of the word of God will make us unpopular. I wonder where they found that man in his black mac with his placard outside Southwark Cathedral. I'm sure that there were many of God's people who were there deeply unhappy with what was going on. But they had to find the man that looked like he came between the wars. Did you notice that? Excellent, the way the media portray us. So kind. But the word of God will isolate me. E Elijah had had the groundwork done in his life, and regular exposure to the scripture will expose what's wrong in here. It will be like food that will cause me to grow strong in a different way. It will refine me, rebuke me, give light to me. What is clear to me was that this man Elijah must have spent much time so that the word of God became familiar to him. Would you agree? Before he could actually come and eyeball King Ahab, the word of God had done something in this man. And I believe that because the word of God had actually brought, brought, put down root in his life, 
when he actually came to the point by the, by the brook Kerith, he would not be at all surprised that God had again got him on his own. It's a very important thing for me, with the word of God, for God to have me on my own. I don't know how often it works for you, but it needs to actually work every day. God needs to have me on my own with his word every day. Oh, David, I never seem to get anything out of it. You don't know. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe there isn't enough faith and expectancy that you will. But I tell you, Elijah was a man who was used to being alone with God and his word regularly. You can say amen. Thank you. Actually, when we first believed, Repentance has this effect on us, doesn't it? You know, it can isolate me. Because I change, I turn, I become new inside. That's the first incident. He, he was on his own to a measure because of truth. The, the next issue, if that, if that was Elijah coming onto the stage, in chapter 18, he, become, he comes center stage. Chapter 18 is the incident on Mount Carmel. And uh, if he was standing, facing idolatry and challenging it in chapter 17, in chapter 18, he really does take on something which you and I would be slow to challenge in quite the same way. This is the, this is the for those of you, I can't read it all, but maybe I can summarize and then read some of it. That what happened was, he challenged the people of Israel, if God be God, follow him. If Baal be God, follow him. Now let's have a test. Let, let, let Baal demonstrate whether he is God and let the Lord be, manifest whether he is God. And therefore all the priests, he invited all the priests of Baal to a party and they all came up onto Mount Carmel and they built an altar and he said, no, put a, put a, a bull on it and let, let's, it, let, the, the God who, let, let the God who answers by fire, let him be God. And therefore, the, the, he was courteous. He let the priests of Baal go first. And so that they built their altar, they put their bull on it, and they started to worship, and they, they got it worked themselves up into a merry frenzy. When it was all rather sad and tired, and they, 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 obviously Baal was asleep, or he'd gone on holiday, as, as Elijah rather sarcastically put it, um, he then built his altar, dug a ditch around it, put the, put the bull on it, and poured water all over it to make it even harder for it to burst into flames. And then the Lord, the, the God that and the, the Lord rained fire down on the altar. Remarkable demonstration that the Lord is God. Uh, Liz's father has friends when they were in Israel, met this man. And uh, he was walking on the top of Mount Carmel. And uh, he was attracted to, to a stone. I think it had split in two. Liz will know better than me. And uh, he was just attracted to this stone. So he picked it up and put it in his pocket. And uh, brought it home to the UK. And... Uh, and, and he met somebody connected with the British Museum in the paleontology department. And he thought, well, I'll, I'll just see what he says. And he, he gave half the stone to this chap who took it to the British Museum to test it. And the, 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 the report by, well, they were quite excited about this stone because it was a stone that had, been, that had been brought into contact with incredible heat in the presence of water. And that half of that stone is now in the British Museum. He told them then where he got it from. But, the, but it was it, the, 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 the heat had impacted this rock, they said, a, a incredible heat in the presence of water. So 
So this is the incident that Elijah got himself into. If you, if you turn to chapter 18, we'll begin to read from verse 36. That just describes the incident. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O oh Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O oh Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood and the stones and the sword, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let them anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the, to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elisha said to Ahab, go, eat and... Why he wasn't slaughtered, I don't know. Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. And so Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. Go and look to the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. And the seventh time the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose and a heavy rain came on and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab, supercharged all the way to Jezreel. Center stage. If you like, the chips were down. And yet this man, in this situation, is confident. He's happy to invite the prophets of Baal to call on their God. He's, in verse 27, he's happy to taunt them. And, uh, and Elijah began to say, shout louder, he said. Surely he's, he is a God. Perhaps he's, he's, he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping. And should be aware. So the, the, the man, in mockery almost, demonstrates his confidence in his God. And then the crunch goes, Lord, demonstrate your power. And the fire comes down. But it, it's the incident that follows just after that, in verse 42, where the fire is, you thought, well, it's all over now. That it, it will all happen, you know. That, but no, the man again, it says that he bent down and put his head between his knees. What was he doing? What was he doing? Well, why, why should it be that this man, you know, he was on a roll, wasn't he? Imagine that it was you, right? And you'd kind of summon fire from heaven. It had actually happened. The, the man surely, but it actually shows, that it illustrates where this man is coming from. The fire may have come down from heaven, but the rain hasn't arrived yet. So what does he do? He gets alone. Even on Carmel, he gets alone. And there are all the people around him. And no, no, you, know, you know what people are like when something goes right. They're all kind of flocking right. So what does he do? Well, he bends down and puts his head between his knees. Because that way he can't see them and he can't hear them. Why is that? Because he knows that the purpose of God will only blossom in his life if he is on his own. There's something that has gone on in this man's life for year on year on year. 
And if he wants to sort things out, if he wants to be absolutely sure that it's going to rain, he's got to get alone with his God again. And there are a number of incidents. If we had time, I could have taken them. But the, 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 he met a widow. And, uh, you know, the man had to prove God again. He was hungry. And he said, well, give me a, give me a, a, a make, bake me a cake. And uh, the oil, that the, the, the jar that your oil is in and the jar that your meal is in, it won't fail until the famine ends. And uh, he just had to put his, 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 his ministry, his life on the line. This man had proved God again and again and again. The widow died. The widow's son died. And she said, well, she almost held him responsible, blamed him. You know, well, here you are, Elijah, do something about it. And he did a Smith Wigglesworth, or did Smith Wigglesworth do an, an Elijah? He, he, he lies on the boy. Three times, I think it was, and, it, and the life of God comes... That, that here was a man who demonstrated actively the power of God in his life. Where did it come from? It came from times when he had his head between his knees. I know it's a bit stupid, isn't it, but... The principle is there. There are occasions when things start to go difficult for us and we need to find God on our own. It is so important. We live in a generation where the quiet time has become old hat. The quiet time with God is not old hat. It is essential spiritual devotional discipline. If I don't find time to get my head between my knees, if you know what I mean, but if I don't get my head between my knees on a regular basis, my work with God will do this. If I don't actually follow Elijah's pattern and get with God on my own, it doesn't matter how loud I sing, I can be as happy, clappy, and as skippy-jippy as I like. I can impress you and make it look with you. Oh, David's terribly spiritual. But if I'm not alone with God, it's fooey. It's all pretense. And we're all excellent actors. But actually it doesn't work unless I find time with God on my own. Actually, it begins that way, doesn't it? Can you remember when you became a Christian? Or have you wondered how you can become a Christian? I'll tell you. How it was with you, it was suddenly, everything else was peripheral, and it was you and God. And you had to say certain things to him. And you had to put certain things right with him. You had to apologize and acknowledge and confess your sin to him. You had to ask this same Jesus to put his spirit in your heart and make you new inside. And it was one on one. You began alone with God. If you didn't begin that way, actually you're not a Christian. If you think you began by having a bishop's hands on your head, I used to believe that. I used to think that that made me a Christian. Actually, it wasn't until by personal faith I put my trust in Jesus for myself and was met God on my own. That was when I became a Christian. As it happens, I walked to, a meet, uh, to, the, to the front of a meeting to demonstrate my trust in my faith, but the business, the deal went on in here. Didn't it? 
Wasn't that how you began? If it wasn't, well, it can be. And you can know God genuinely, powerfully on your own. But it cannot stop there. I have to find God in the same way on a very regular basis. But there's a third incident in the life of, um, if, if, life of Elijah, and you'll find it in this time in chapter 19. Let me read it to you. We're going to break bread and, find, and seek to meet with God again personally, but let's look at chapter 19. Now, Ahab told Jezreel, Je- told Jezebel, sorry, everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Now, Jezebel was not impressed. doesn't say that there, but I can read it, that into the text quite easily. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid. Isn't that amazing? You would have thought, wouldn't you, when it's rain fire and the rain is still pattering on the window panes, that it would have acted differently. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Uh, Ever been there? Hands up. Hands up. So we we are the Elijah generation. I knew it. I knew it. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Quite right. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said sensitively, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals. <laughs> a bit better than a raven's bread, isn't it? And a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and then lay down again. And the angel came back a second time and touched him, and, and touched him, thumped him, and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous. Pathetic this, isn't it? For the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I, only I am left. And now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. And so he went on. 
I suppose the fear element was a natural reaction. I'm sure we've all been in situations where the adrenaline has run and run, and then when it's all over, we just kind of flop. And things emotionally, on a purely human level, that we just cave in. There was a personal threat, it's true. Jezebel was not a nice lady. But aren't we often most vulnerable in our walk with the Lord just after things have gone well? Aren't we? Isn't this one of the great dangers of kind of conference season, that we go on a spiritual high, and then we come back and things just do not work at all? It's quite a common problem, I'm I'm sure, that we can identify. And therefore we have this man with despair and discouragement written all over him. Depression and resignation. I'm sure I've been there many times. And he said he'd had enough. He, He felt dry and empty. The presence of God, which had been so real not very long ago, seemed totally unreal now, as if it had never happened. Funny, isn't it? Isn't that odd? How people who can have the most profound experience of God, we can get very quickly, we can get to the point where perhaps I imagined it all. It would appear that Elijah is in the same position, and he's doubting. And this angel comes up to him and says, Get up, Elijah. Go and meet with God, Elijah. I do believe that's what he was saying. He said, Go to Horeb. Go on. Go to Horeb. You need to meet with God again, Elijah. Go to Horeb. And uh, Elijah goes to Horeb and there's the, the Lord puts on this remarkable show for him. You know, this is, this is we talk about powerful effects. Well, this is, this is a mega show. Disneyland has got nothing compared to Horeb when God reveals himself afresh to this man. And uh, God renews, reveals, and then whispers to him personally. Why do you think the Lord, what do you think, uh, well, let me jumble here. What did the Lord mean when he said, why are you here, Elijah? What's behind? How, how can we say this? Well, we can say it in a number of ways. I wonder which was true. What are you doing here, Elijah? As if Elijah wasn't meant to be in the presence of God. I don't think God was talking to Elijah that way at all. I don't think that God was suggesting to Elijah that he should have been back on Carmel, kind of calling down the rain or the fire. That's the, that's, that's the way we often read it. It is as if God is almost blaming him for being there. I don't think God was doing that at all. Now, what are you doing here, Elijah? Well, I'm meeting with you, Lord. Now, what, what's happening now, Elijah? Well, I'm feeling your love again, Lord. What are you doing here, Elijah? I'm meeting with you again, Lord. Isn't that true? To me, that has a much more consistent reading with the way that God deals with us than the other, as if God was saying, go away, you shouldn't be here. I don't think he's saying that at all. What are you doing here, Elijah? You're meeting with me, Elijah. But again, I have to make the point. He had to do it on his own. God had to get him away from the busyness of Carmel. Busyness is a terrible thing, isn't it? And, and distractions are many. How many times have we said, right, Lord, this is it. 
everything else aside, isn't it amazing how quickly important things can come and demand to be seen to? Isn't it? Or is it just me? And so it was for him. This great threat to busyness. But we must, if I can say it, put it, put it quite simply, we must be alone to hear his whispers. And maybe many of us this morning, in our heart of hearts, if we were to be honest, say, yes, I do need to come to Horeb again. Yeah, this is not coming to God to his law to be terrified and be threatened by his justice. This is Elijah, get up, eat up, and go to the Mount of God. It would be one of those most helpful pastoral lines that Brian and I could use. You come to us, oh David, it's such as a get up, eat up, and go to the Mount of God. Wouldn't it solve a lot of our pastoral difficulties? Don't you think? But quite a helpful line, Brian. It could shorten our telephone conversations and we could get through about twenty counselling sessions in a day. Get up, eat up, and go to the Mount of God. You see, there's no substitute. I need to go and find God again on my own. Isn't it true? How is it for you? When was the last time? In these times of confusion and, and discouragement and ill health and emotional flatness, it's all here. The, the fellow just walked a long way through a desert. He probably had a headache too. Get up, eat up, and go and meet with God. Christian, for your encouragement, the same God that met with... I'm not saying it's going to, that the place is going to shake quite the same. right? I, I'm not sure that the wind is going to blow quite the same. But the same invitation is for you. If we will be a people who will seek him, we will certainly find him if we seek him with all of our heart. What could be more important? And how much of our trouble, how much difficulty do I bring on my head because I neglect the mount, the, the, to go to the mountain of God for myself, on my own, to know my God personally and in a fresh way again. You see, once I've done this, once, once I've been in God's presence and been renewed there, that there's something then that I can cultivate and maintain there's something about the presence. I, I used to get annoyed. There's a little book called by Brother Lawrence called Practicing the Presence of God. You know, as if, you know, it isn't real, but pretend it is. That's what I used to think it meant. You know, kind of you know, make it up and convince yourself and be, be pious. You know, practice. Kind of walk around like this. I, I'm not sure that that's what the man meant. I think it's much more likely that the man meant actually cultivate. Cultivate. By regular withdrawing there, a sense of the presence of God day by day. We, we were talking recently. You know, how else am I, following Thessalonians 5, to be joyful always, praying continually, giving thanks in all circumstances? The only way that that outflow can work in my life is if I'm spending time with God on my own regularly. The, the founder of the church that I used to a uh, pastor in South Wales, a man um, saved in the Welsh Revival in 1904, a man by the name of Edward Stenner. They used to ask him, he used to do evangelistic tours in West Wales, and they, they used to ask Edward Stenner, how is it that you are always so up and spirit, 
and lively spiritually. And he said, I carry my environment with me. Are you having difficulty at school? Having difficulty at work? Is it ever so hard at home that if we will get back to Horeb and from Horeb carry our environment with us, can you imagine the difference it will make? It's a lovely thought that God wants, us to, wants to welcome us back into his presence so that we will be a people happy to spend time in his presence and then be ready for the world that faces us. Let's bow our heads, shall we? That there's that the table where we break bread and take of the cup is a table where Jesus invites us back into fellowship with him, back into communion, back into knowing his presence for ourselves. Lord, we are all needy here. Some of us have been through great difficulties, great sadnesses, great pain, great trouble. And Lord, we've struggled on on our own and, 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 and too often have been so slow to get apart and find and seek your face, to get a right perspective. Lord, we ask you this morning as we break bread together that you'll help us to do this. Lord, some of us, it, that to know the reality of your presence on our own, Lord, it's been a long time and we've been making do and doing the best we could and, and not really breaking through to finding you freshly. Lord, this morning, as we come and kneel, as it were, back at the cross again, as we come and admit, Lord, to you our great need and how you are our God and we want to know you and for things to be intimate and personal between us. Lord, as we do this this morning, will you make it sound?